If you're wondering how many computers it takes to screw in a light bulb, just Google it. But if you're an Adventist and you want to learn about porn addiction in the church, you've come to the right place. Today on Stuff Adventists Should Know, how porn addiction works from an Adventist perspective. I talked to a counselor here in Berrien Springs who wrote his dissertation on the psychology of addiction to porn. And I was super excited to do this interview because we rarely get to hear about this topic from a scientific background. Usually we get pastoral and theological advice about sexual immorality in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. We're given a biblical prescription of prayer and devotion to overcome sin without really any scientific explanation or practical approach. But today, we're going to look at some statistics and Dr. Brad Hinman is going to talk about the psychological and physiological process of porn addiction, as well as why it's such a hidden but prevalent issue in our church. Also, we're going to hear from a recovering addict today on Stuff Adventists Should Know. I have a counseling practice in Berrien Springs, Michigan, uh, where I see individuals, couples, families, and I do a group as well. And I'm also a full-time professor at Andrews University in the Graduate Psychology and Counseling Department. Dr. Hinman accidentally became the church's foremost expert on porn addiction. Not that he's the church's official authority on the subject, but we don't really have an official authority on this subject other than pastoral stuff. So I decided to make him the official Seventh-day Adventist authority on porn addiction. <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> um, have you ever seen any other dissertations on it? No. Really? Mm -mm. Yeah. It's kind of an odd thing to specialize in, but when you look at the numbers and how big of a problem it is for marriages, it makes sense that Brad would have stumbled upon it when he needed to find a topic to write about that would help families. So I literally googled problems that affect families and porn was the first thing that came up. So I did my presentation on pornography addiction and how it affects families and the professor uh, was strongly vocal about no one is studying this and counselors need to know it and counselors aren't trained in this and that the class needed to pay attention because I was presenting on an important topic. And then in the hour drive home that I had after class, uh, the idea came to me to do my dissertation on pornography addiction. And <laughs> I prayed and asked God to uh, convince my family that that was a good idea. <laughs> and he did. So the stats on porn use that I'm about to read far outweigh the dialogue and research that are currently going into it, especially in the church. So here's some numbers. 90% of young boys and 60% of young girls have been exposed to porn before they reach the age of 18. 8 in 10 men between the ages of 18 and 30, these are millennials, view porn monthly. Two-thirds of men between the ages of 31 and 49 view porn monthly. One half of men between the ages of 50 and 68 view porn monthly. 63% of pastors confirm that they struggle with sexual addiction or sexual compulsion. 64% of Christian men say that they view porn at least once a month. So what I'm interested in now, why do people look at porn? What is the psychology and the physiology that is taking place? 
because these are really big numbers. The chemicals released into your bloodstream when people look at porn and masturbate are many more times stronger than cocaine and it has a similar effect on the brain as cocaine does. So then they kind of fall in love with those chemicals and they want those chemicals because it makes them feel really good. There's powerful pain relievers, there's powerful bonding chemicals happening, which is intended to make you fall in love with your partner. But then if your partner is a computer screen or your phone, then it's gonna make you fall in love with that. The reasons people start out looking at porn are not the reasons that they keep looking at porn, and those are not the reasons that people get out of control with looking at porn. And it just kind of builds into the brain and people end up looking at porn compulsively as a coping mechanism is what I find uh, to cope with negative emotions in their life or even to create positive emotions in their life. It really is real underlying reason that people with out of control porn use look at porn is to alter their emotional state. There's a really popular belief in Christianity, and I would include Adventism, that prayer and consecration to God through devotional time is the cure to sinning. That with enough positive inputs of time with God, the negative outputs in our lives will eventually be replaced with the positive outputs, which are the fruits of the Spirit. Do you think this actually ignores problems like porn addiction and doesn't proactively deal with them effectively? I think it's well-intentioned advice. I think it's oversimplification. And many times, I think if people were able to conquer something by doing that, then they wouldn't have a problem. And many men that I've worked with, with with this issue, it should not be thought of as they didn't pray hard enough, or they didn't want it bad enough, or they weren't good enough Christians. I think that that's a mistake, and I think it's dangerous, and I think it's shameful uh, when people treat them that way. Many of the men that I've worked with have been very earnest and devout Christian Adventist men who love the Lord with all their hearts and still had this issue that was out of control for them and have spent a lot of time in agony over this issue, uh, wishing that it was eliminated from their life through a miraculous means. And I can't speak for God on why he's choosing not to eradicate it from their lives. But I do, I can speak that I'm here as a result of God asking me to do this. We should take advantage of the people and the things that God had placed in our path. You know, many of us don't have an issue going to the doctor when we're sick. We should take that same advice when we're emotionally unhealthy as well. I think this helps me understand why porn addiction is so taboo in our church. Because if you're struggling with a dependency on porn, people might not believe you're having enough faith in God, or you're not a legit Christian, or you're not praying enough, or that you just love sin. That would feel really isolating. So of course, why would we talk about it if we know we would feel isolated? And this is precisely Dr. Hinman's reason why this problem isn't getting better in our church. Pornography and sex, sexual topics as a whole, as an umbrella term, it's very mute in our church. We don't, we don't talk about sex. We don't talk about pornography. We don't talk about any of those issues. We certainly don't talk about sexual problems from the church's standpoint. And certainly individuals within the church don't talk about these things unless there are people out there that do that I don't know about. Uh, but we're generally very quiet. And, and if we do talk to people or children about sex or sexual topics, it's don't do it, period. 
That's that's the extent of the conversation. And then when people get married, then all of a sudden they can do it, but they don't know how because nobody's ever talked to them about it. So generally when people don't know how to do something, they Google it and then porn comes up and <laughs> pornography is a bad teacher of sex because it's unrealistic. And it seems like this is the reason why we don't have actual numbers in the Seventh-day Adventist church on how bad this problem is. We don't know how bad it is because we don't talk about it. Essentially, this is a very hidden problem. It's very secretive. Uh, research does show that the more conservative the religion, the more it drives sex underground and it's hidden and secretive. So people, again, people are not going to talk about something that is forbidden by the church. So it's, it's very problematic. I've heard anecdotal evidence, which means just people telling me, so it's not re scientific research that it is a prevalent problem, uh, especially in the church, uh, in, in including church leadership. Well, um, can we have prayer as we start? Yeah. David Sittler is a pastor for the Georgia Cumberland Conference. Father, I ask you to be with Nick and I as we dialogue and as others listen. The stories you give each of us may be an encouragement to someone else, that they may have a story as well. Thank you that uh, you've promised to the Holy Spirit to be with us in our time together. In your name, Jesus. Amen. I became friends with Pastor David Sittler a few years ago, and I called him so he could tell a little bit of his story about how after eight years of pastoring and being married, his wife actually discovered that he himself was using porn regularly. I struggled with it. I, I had this tinge even before I was a Christian that something probably wasn't quite right. Um, when I became a Christian, I didn't want to do it. And that was at 19 years of age. And there was a period of time where uh, I didn't, but I went back into it. And I would struggle with it periodically. It would come and go. Um, could be a few months. It could be a few weeks. And a couple districts ago, I had surgery. And through all of that, I withdrew. And finally, um, Cinda found out. And I just finally said, I got to deal with this. And uh, it finally just came to a head. And so I uh, actually called Focus on the Family, found a counselor in our area that um, specialized in addictions and men's addiction issues and pornography in particular. And when I went to him, um, I was figuring I was going to go to him and he's going to somehow deal with the pornography and, you know, help me and fix me, so to speak. He said, um, really, the pornography is not the issue. And I said, uh, I'm, I'm here for pornography. He said, well, that's not the issue. I said, well, what's the issue? He said, addictions. Yeah, it's addiction. He said, the real issue with addiction is generally we go to them to hide from the pain of our past and things we don't want to deal with. We, we, we hide it. It's our release. And if we don't deal with the real issues, the pressure will build up. My tendency was to hide from life or to get away from it, kind of like a pressure cooker, to release it, and it ended up being the pornography is how I, I, I did it, and that's how I addressed it. So he helped me see the what was really behind 
what was going on, why I had anger along with it, and it was because of fear or shame or hurt. And actually, I had all three of them from my family of origin. As we began to deal with those with the Holy Spirit's help, um, I found I didn't need the, I didn't need pornography. So even though David was a pastor, he used porn to cope with stress and latent anxiety. And he didn't just decide he was going to quit because it was the holy thing to do. His wife had to catch him. And then he went to counseling. And there he dug into his past and worked through some difficult and traumatic experiences from childhood. And this he had to do two or three times a week, and he still checks in with the same counselor. He took responsibility for the condition that he found himself in. You, you, you really can't experience the fullness of what God wants for you when you're living in shame and guilt and fear. When you're not living that compartmentalized double life, as James calls it, double-mindedness, then God can really work and use us. You, you see pastors constantly struggling with uh, adultery and different things. I really believe we're not dealing with the issues that we need to deal with in our lives. So we medicate it by trying to get more baptisms, working harder, not taking day, days off, because we, we don't want to be in, connect with and deal with the areas that we need to deal with in our life, emotionally or the pain that's deep down in. So we just try to help more people, and it becomes this deadly treadmill of never stopping, resting, never connecting, uh, just in a sense performing, and sooner or later it come crashing down because no one can live under that pressure. Addictions are not the real issue. It's, it's what we're trying to cover or soothe or really not deal with by going to the addiction that really is the issue that needs to be addressed. And if we're willing to let God help us deal with that and the nitty-gritty of that, because it can be scary and it's not pleasant, we will find healing and help like we've never had before and wholeness and not this, not this double standard, kind of double-mindedness, uh, compartmentalizing that we can do. And it's a whole lot better to have freedom than shame and guilt we know we're doing something different than what we profess. What is the difference between shame and guilt? Because I hear those words used interchangeably, and I myself use them interchangeably. What is the difference, or is there a difference? There is a difference, and one can be used for positive gain, and the other, in my opinion, cannot. Uh, shame is, I am a horrible person. I'm, I'm a bad person. I am a pervert. I am you know, all the, these kinds of labels that people put on themselves, uh, that's, that's shame when it's a per, kind of a permanent state of being, um, which also leads people to be powerless to change, right? You, you can't change I am statements. And so generally you can't. Um, but guilt is I did something wrong or I did something bad or I did something outside of my value system. I did something that I don't like, and, and I, 
and it made me uncomfortable or awkward or right um, made me feel yucky. And so um, that's guilt and guilt can be used to propel you forward. It, but people tend to stop. They, they focus on that. I did a bad thing. And then that moves into, I, that means I'm a horrible person, which is shame. So guilt for many people turns instantly into shame, but it doesn't have to. Uh, what I teach people is that if you did something that's outside of your behavior rules for yourself, then you should feel guilty for that. And then you should use that to say, I don't, I don't like feeling guilty. So what do I need to change so that I don't have to feel like this again? Right. So, so what do I need to do? So I, the next time I'm in this situation, I don't choose a behavior that's outside of my value system. So guilt can be used to alter the future path, right? Uh, so that you don't have to feel awkward and uncomfortable again. So Dr. Hinman has the knowledge and the psychology to really make a difference in our church and in the world for mental health. So he's putting this into practice in a group that he started for men to come and just be honest and talk and to be completely transparent with each other, which is what we need, right? Since we're not talking about this, we need to talk. And it's actually really effective. I lead a group for uh, men with out-of-control sexual behavior. Um, so they want to stop using porn or they want to stop um, random casual sexual hookups with people, um, affairs, um, just kind of anything that is out-of-control sexual behavior. It's exclusively for men. Um, although some women have this issue as well. One of Dr. Hinman's main reasons why the group is only for men is because men are typically shy about opening up about their sexual problems in front of the opposite sex. Men are socially programmed to know everything about sex. He also doesn't allow guests to come, so it's a pretty closed group. The, the model that I follow is a sex-positive model, uh, meaning that I'm not shame-based, and so... We talk about sex from a positive standpoint, although there are people in the group who don't want to engage in any sexual behavior because they're single, and that's fine with me. I help them to achieve that goal. So what usually takes place in a group session? So what we do in, our, in the group is there is a psychoeducational piece, and then the group members respond to that, and then I give them encouragement to go home and practice what I've taught them. And then we come back the next week and we talk about how that went and what struggles that they had in implementing what we talked about. And then they, I teach them something else and then we go on from there. So my last question is, what can the Seventh-day Adventist Church do in terms of raising awareness and confronting this issue that is not being talked about? Well, as I said earlier, uh, Addiction thrives in secrecy and shame. And so secrecy, of course, being one of those two words that I just said, I think the church can begin talking about this issue, uh, begin talking about why pornography is not something that is encouraged in our congregations. We, we just say, don't, don't look at it as bad, but we don't really talk about why. You know, there are, the reasons are many of, of why pornography can become something that, that people use compulsively. And, you know, like the chemicals that I talked about earlier is one thing. 
that it's unrealistic portrayal of sexual interaction between people. The porn industry has said over and over again that they don't want to be the teachers uh, for people to learn about sex, that it's for entertainment, it's not for instruction. The church's silence and the church members' silence about porn and sexual topics within the home leads people to learn about it elsewhere. If we don't talk about it, then how are people supposed to learn about it? Uh, But as early as four or five, uh, we should be talking to kids about porn and bad pictures because, like I said, you know, 90% of children will be exposed to hardcore pornography before they reach 18. And the average age of the first exposure to pornography is between 8 and 10. And so we need to be talking to them well before that. You can't wait until they're 11 or 12 because they've already been exposed to pornography by then, typically. And so, in my opinion, four or five, so before they start going to school, where we're still in control of everything, or we should be, or we should at least try to be in control of everything that gets uh, input into their brain, they're going to see things that are confusing to them, whether it's porn or whether it's not, right? We need to, we need to be open to conversations so our children can approach us and ask us questions without us losing our minds, uh, you know, and, and punish and shaming them for, for talking to us about things. We need to be open to have these discussions. Uh, so you asked where it should start. It should start in the home uh, when children are young, but it also should be talked about in schools. And yes, pastors should be talking about it in church. And again, in all those settings, making sure that people are okay with and, and that we're open for people to come to us and ask us questions and answer questions. And that's another way that I run my groups. It's not, there's, I hope that there's no shaming coming from me with the groups, right? That, that I, that I have an open forum for them to ask questions. And then I talk to them and teach them the answers to the questions that they have because secrecy is food for an addiction. And I want to eliminate the secrecy. I think we struggled because there's still a stigma to it. Now I tell people in my sermons, I, when I'm preaching and stuff, I just tell people, you know, I, I did a sermon on Revelation 7 a couple weeks ago on the ceiling, and I told people, you know what, growing in Jesus may require you to be in Christian counseling and dealing with the hard issues. And and I just tell people that, and they'll come out and go, I had one person come up to me, and we're talking somebody in like 70s, came up and says, who do you go to, who do you recommend in this area to go to for for Christian counseling? So I said, I've been recommending people to go to these this organization right here. And they've been coming back and telling me that's been quite a blessing in helping them. And I gave them the information. I wouldn't have done that years ago. And I'm not sure people would have come and asked years ago. Somehow I believe God is using Christian counseling, dealing with emotional, mental health, uh, because I really believe He has to. We have to deal with it where we're not going to grow spiritually because we can't compartmentalize our lives. There's a number of helpful resources in this episode's show notes for those who have listened to this and realized they could use some help. Whoever you are out there, male or female, don't go it alone. Find someone wise and kind to talk to. 
Stuff Adventists Should Know is written, recorded, and edited by me, Nick Hostet. The music for this episode was kindly provided by John Luke Hefferman, Podington Bear, Roger Plexico, and Scott Gratton. Thank you so much to Dr. Brad Hinman and Pastor David Sittler, who took time to let me pick their brain about such a sensitive topic. Thank you for listening to Stuff Adventists Should Know. I hope you learned something.